0: Popular Pig is also made possible by the National Pork Board, Johnsonville Foods, Hypo Genetics, Minitube, Brenneman Pork, Fibro Animal Health, Swine Robotics, Innovative Heating, and Pigequipment.com. Brought to you by American Resources.
1: Welcome to the Popular Pig Podcast. My name is Matthew Roto, your host for today's episode. Today, we're joined by Joseph Kearns to talk about, oops, we did it again. Hey, Joe, how are you today?
2: I'm doing well. Thank you, Matthew.
1: So a few weeks ago, we were in uh, Nashville, and you give a presentation. And usually, your presentations are pretty optimistic. I'll give you that at least the last <laughs> few years. And this one was not. And so it definitely perked my ears up to hear kind of the opposite side of things. But it had to do a lot with grain markets. And if, uh, if you wouldn't mind just kind of taking it from there, I'd love for you to kind of talk about the future and outlook around corn and soy and how the costs might go up drastically given all the things that are going on with politics. So uh
2: let's contextualize just for a moment. And you and I were together in, in PIC every other year, with the exception of the COVID year, so it got extended here a little bit, uh, puts together a symposium that is one of the more well-run uh, efforts uh, in our industry great crowd, normally great topics. Uh, and I was asked to kind of give a presentation on that uh, on what happens with the input side. And so if we take one step backwards and say, and, and you say, normally I'm relatively optimistic, and this one put a little, little fear of the devil uh, in the crowd, I am still optimistic about the overall profitability, but we do have something to address specifically on the input side. Uh, and, and you and I had spoken before regarding this initiation of renewable diesel and what it's going to mean to agriculture, the, the addition of 700 million bushels of crush capacity over the next two years. We've never done this before. We, this, this is this is revolutionary in the soy processing side, very much akin to what occurred back in 2005 or started back about 2005 with the ethanol era, except this one is on steroids, and, and, and we're going to, to move much more quickly than we did back then. Uh, the only constraint that we've got is, is the construction piece of it. The capital is readily availed. The, the, the demand is put forth under uh, the interestingly named Inflation Reduction Act, which doesn't do a doggone thing to address uh, a suppression of inflation whatsoever. But inside those provisions, there, there's, some, there's some very key nuggets for agriculture, and that would be uh, largely the increase of the subsidies of the 45Qs going from $50 per ton of sequestered carbon to $80 per ton. And that might not sound like a revolutionary thing, but there was a lot of projects right on that knife edge at fifty dollars. Does it work? Does it not? And the thrust over to this eighty dollars per ton for permanent sequestering absolutely brings into play uh, a, a lot of the a lot of the projects that were that were teetering somewhat. Even with increased interest rates, it really doesn't matter. Uh, furtherance from my conversation after that PIC meeting is I've had uh, additional uh, type of correspondence and and back and forth with with those that are readily involved or heavily involved in the uh, renewable agricultural space. And they will will see the tea leaves exactly the same. We might not agree on the exact conclusions, but here's what I know for sure is that they are plowing ahead. They've got the government subsidy, uh, both from a tax credit as well as a direct check from the government waiting in the wings. They know that it's going to be in place at least for the Next two years, and so they are trying to grab and garner as much as humanly possible. This one is apolitical, in my opinion. It is the the left side of the political spectrum wants to do something to address uh, uh, what is perceived to be a, you know kind of a daunting threat in the form of carbon, and the right side of the equation is also more than willing to participate given the economic uh, fortress that's just coming at them. And so, uh, I think that those of us in animal agriculture are going to get squeezed in the middle. Uh, in this whole, in this whole effort, it, it will sort itself out, and, and I think that probably occurs five years down the road, but um, uh, for a guy that normally prides himself on being able to see six months into the future and thinks that that's pretty cool, uh, this one I think we can see two to three years into the future, and, and so hence my uh, uh, just kind of vim and vigor toward uh, uh, Sharing with the crowd that's going to be impacted, whether they know it or not, here's what's coming at you. And and uh and we can talk through some of the numbers if that if that helps your listener group or or just tell me where you'd like to take conversation, please.
1: Oh, I'd love to because when you think about how many more acres of beans that are going to be needed and what you're gonna take away from corn, it has a it plays a huge role in the second part of this conversation when we start talking about kind of the jet side of things. Yes. Yes,
2: and so let's uh, let's kind of define that. So by my calculations, and this is just bringing on the crush capacity that is uh, uh, under construction, not even some that's been talked about, is under construction. Uh, is that you're going to need another 15 million acres over the next two years? In order to move into the soy spot now. Now traditionally, uh, there's been a swap that that if I'm adding soy acres, I've got to take away from something. We we we've actually been on a decline as far as aggregate acres planted. And with the drought that we're having in the West, I don't see any any back off of that whatsoever. Uh, And those are going to more than likely come directly out of corn. I do believe there's going to be a one to one. Conversion, you, you might argue a little bit of wheat, but I'd say the wheat acres are going to be down also. Uh, cotton is, is firmly entrenched within ten acres. It just can't go in Traditionally hasn't gone any lower than where we sit right now. Uh, so I do think that you've got a one for one relationship coming, uh, with whatever I add to soy, I take away from corn. It's going to have some agronomic questions. How, how do I plant soy on soy? Can I do it? And the answer is, of course, you can. Uh, but we don't know the far reaching ramifications. We were long able to prove that corn on corn is is a viable alternative depending upon your soil types and, and your, uh, your, kind of your topography, uh, but I think we're going to start to change the face of production agriculture on the agronomic side of it as well as what happens on the livestock side of it. So the 15 million acres that I give you, that's a direct result of the renewable diesel piece The uh, uh, sustainable aviation fuel uh, that was codified inside of the Inflation Reduction Act looks like it wants to pull another 7 million acres or so back to corn. And so now you have these two commodities struggling for a fixed acreage base, at least domestically a fixed acreage base. And more than likely, the outcome is uh, we we continue to add acres in South America and and, uh, uh, revert back to, to one of the earlier warnings that we had back in the ethanol boom of number one are we deforesting the Amazon in order to uh, to supply food and, and in this case fuel uh, to a growing world um, and just uh, what happens with the with the dollar exchange rate and what it means uh, for where does equilibrium occur and, and there's there's some nuances that we probably don't have time to get into today about what gets credited and I'll give you a for instance uh, that uh, that if you're in an ethanol facility all of the low carbon fuel standard money goes to the ethanol side of it now the fact that you're spinning off oil and a portion of that has a carbon index uh, that perhaps is a little bit lower that that side of it the refining side of it at least on corn oil does not receive uh, those uh, monetary benefits so there's a lot of moving pieces a lot of moving parts the bottom line is that we are we are going to be challenged we as in animal agriculture are going to be challenged for the substrate uh, that we see uh, that we feed every day if you hop into the bowels of the uh, of the data, uh, there are seven different approved vectors uh, of those corn and soy are number one and two, and then we get into municipal waste solids and and the reclaiming of garbage dumps and and the contribution of algae. All the, they, they sound great, and I'm a huge advocate. There is nothing commercially scalable at this point in time. The most readily available substrate are the starches that come from corn and the oils that come from soybeans, and we are going to be in a dogfight. And so I think it's very important for your producers to recognize the scenario that we're in and start to act accordingly.
1: And this likely means that, in theory, exports might dwindle to nothing.
2: On- uh, yes, yeah, yeah. Uh, and let's put that in context is, uh, last year we were 2.5 billion bushels. Uh, the way that I, that I put together my spreadsheets, I knock, knock it down to a billion bushels is my best guess. And the reason for that is because Mexico takes about 900 million bushels. So you, you, that cross-border transfer doesn't appear as if it even has an opportunity to go away given logistics and, and the lack of receiving ports. Uh, into the Mexican production areas that, that sit close to the to the Laredo uh, border and where the transfer takes place. Uh, so I see corn being exported solely to Mexico, maybe a couple other spots, obviously Canada, uh, but but, but uh, the U.S. largely non-participatory in the export markets on corn and on soybean. We will we will more than likely uh, sacrifice the huge China demand to the Brazilians and the Argentinians in large part. Obviously, we'll have some fill-in given the seasonality. Uh, but, but I think the structure starts to come down to uh, is that corn and soy are absolute domestic-type products. Exports get mitigated, and suddenly, uh, if, you, if you go, well, what about the exchange rate? Well, if we're just trading domestic stuff. It's dollars for dollars. The exchange rate doesn't matter anymore. And the exchange rate argument for the compression of exports uh, has been a plausible and justifiable argument that the price of corn can't go to X, pick whatever your X is. I think that that ceiling, whatever it was, gets raised in this environment where everything is in dollar delimited terms.
1: Who is talking about this for our industry, for our producers? I mean, when you look into the political side of things, Mm -hmm. political landscape, Is anybody talking about how this is going to affect animal agriculture?
2: Um, There's been discussions of... uh uh, uh, AFIA, w- w- which is our our voice and our arm, is aware of this. I've had these conversations. Uh, I cannot give you a, a direct application of what they've done with it, but there is a cognition and an awareness. The other part that, that I would make this akin to is even if I tell you that a tornado is coming, or how about, how about this? When you had the hurricane hit Florida, we sat there for three days in front of it and watched, uh, and and then you watch the devastation that occurs in the wake. You were aware, but you can't do a doggone thing to stop it, and I think that is a, a very clean parallel to where we sit right now, is we may be aware, and we might kick and scream and say, no, you know, stop the storm, but, but you can't. You can't stop this one, given its appropriation uh, within, the, within the Senate and the House. Actually, the, the Inflation Reduction Act didn't even have to go through uh, a, a lot of votes on this particular one, as uh, Mr. Biden recently pointed out, uh, but, but you've got an opportunity opportunity here uh, to, to do something in the future knowing that we have to batten down prior to the impact uh, of what this looks like. And one of those things is, what do I do on my farm or in my industry in order to find out the diversity of feedstuffs that I can utilize absent of corn and absent of fat and still make an animal grow? And I think that's going to be a challenge to every industry that we've got and and, uh, within an industry to each production, each producer as an individual.
1: So what can producers do then? I mean, if we're going to have to watch the storm, get steamrolled and pick the pieces up, is there anything that can be done?
2: Uh, yes. Yes. So number one is uh, uh, what, what can I do in my experimental barns or in conjunction with my nutritional purveyors in order to discover, is there a ration that anticipates these price changes? And what can we learn from it now Be- before we kind of hit this tsunami that I just described? Uh, time's running out because those, those trials obviously uh, take a grow out. Period, and by the time you evaluate the results, you might have a, a little bit of time left. But the second thing that we can do is, is kind of get out in front. And uh, the, the December corn in the in the front months, whether it's December of 23 or December of 24, are both trading at significant discounts to where we sit right now, which I think is telling, uh, as well as uh, it provides an opportunity. Uh, just as we speak right now, we're just shy of seven bucks. We're six eighty five on December 22. D23 is trading at 6.22, uh, and D24 is at uh, 6.53. So, uh, Matthew, if, if anything, I see us uh, having more and more competition for a, a, a limited supply of both corn and soy. And as we sit right now,
1: that is not being reflected on those forward curves. Do you see? Do you see that demand? That competitive demand for corn? for ethanol or fuel becoming more outsourced or moved to a different like sugar cane or something? Or is the US pretty dead set on using corn?
2: Uh well the well the United States, uh given given that your sugar crop uh to get that established uh, it is a several-year process. You know, the, the other piece is, well, what happens with Malaysian palm oil? Can't we can't we import that? And the answer is yes, but you've got some environmental concerns that are even bigger, perhaps, than global warming or a more direct impact, given uh, mm-hmm. uh, some population of animals, mind you. Uh, but but I don't see I don't see our ability to move sideways quickly enough in order to avoid what's coming at us long term. Yes. Long-term, do you see the electrification of our fleet opening up, uh, ethanol processing because our, our fuel demand decreases, uh, you know, particularly by 2035 when California is supposedly all going to be electrified and other states are going to follow suit? Yeah. Yeah, we're, we're going to see change. Uh, the, the one that I just teased out to you with that finite, that's probably pretty foolish because more than likely there, there's a lot of changes. That come in between now and then the advancement of technologies for some of these other uh, uh, other production methodologies that are currently in their infancy and are still not scalable as we speak uh, does come online so I, I don't have a lack of faith in our ability to innovate the biggest component that I think is of concern is the timing of everything and we just don't have time remember back in the ethanol era, and I'll refer to that again is that we built the industry as we needed it. We had the mandate that came out that over the course of several years increased the, the, the capacity slightly every single year, kind of hitting a crescendo in 2008 when we had a short crop, and then again in 2012 with a short crop that led to explosive values, uh, upticks in values and prices. But it was funny because uh, uh, I was just actually reviewing a paper today from 2012 put out by an uh, uh, Iowa State D- division uh, called CARD, at the time, it still is, uh, that that, tried to say, what's going to happen and do you adjust the biofuels mandate in light of a short crop? And I think that some of those same discussions are going to take place. We will get the food versus fuel debate. That'll be brought back in uh, to the fold uh, the, the the unintended consequences or the oops, I did it again type moment that you referenced earlier, uh, I think will happen uh, w- with uh, the suffering of people and the suffering of people that don 't look like us they don 't speak our own our own language, but it would be in countries that that don 't enjoy our standards of living that already pay a substantial portion of their income for their food, and now that food is is less available, and these would largely be African countries. Uh, that would be negatively impacted more than anything uh, that a war in Ukraine is doing. Uh, this would be a, a just a, a loss of opportunity and a loss of life that, that I think is, is eventually what changes it. And I don't say that with any happiness whatsoever. I think it's a travesty. The food versus fuel debate will come back full swing.
1: There you have it. Bird versus food versus fuel. Price is going to go up. Thank you, Joe, for joining us to talk about this and to inform our producers on on what things you're seeing and what they should probably keep be keeping their eyes, their eyes on. Thank, thank you for having me here. I I don't mean it to be such a
2: dire warning. We do have opportunities in order to mitigate some of the some of the the, the detrimental impacts that I see coming. Uh, and as things change, I'll be happy to give you a call back and say I changed my mind. Some we got new input, therefore there's a new uh, new stimulus here.